0: Are now listening to the Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Doug Casey, it's been a while since you've been on the Big Trade series. We're going to have some really interesting guests. I'm actually rebooting the podcast. Been focused on so many projects of late, but um. Please update us on what you've been up to over the last year or so.
1: Well, let me see. Um, I spent a week in Zimbabwe. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Zimbabwe since the mid-70s, actually. Right. And it was quite interesting. Uh, Of course, Zimbabwe is in the midst of uh, another total disaster. Right. Uh, They Once again, yeah, so... Nothing nothing really changes there i I talked to uh, all the top government officials I was supposed to have met with Mugabe, but that wasn't possible because he was in Singapore for medical reasons while I was there uh, about uh, my radical plan for reforming their desperate economy so that was uh that was quite interesting
0: Is, uh, doug if you don't mind me interjecting. Is there any way in which, I'm, I know you talk to a lot of different states or countries or whatever you want to call them, and you've proposed to them these ideas that connect value creation and privatization, connecting capital markets to some of these countries. What is the, the blueprint that you would define for basically pitching to some of the um, leaders of these states about what you could do to add value for them? Broadly speaking, but,
1: yes. The ideal state, from my point of view, is a backward state that feels like it has nothing to lose, so will actually try something intelligent. And the basis of the plan that appeals to ex-Marxists is to take a hundred percent of all the government's assets. With most of these places, the land is mostly owned by the government. The parastatal corporations, like the airline and so forth. Uh, a lot of buildings and put them in one corporation initially mm-hmm. and distribute the shares of that corporation, let's say 70% of the shares pro rata to every man, woman, and child in the country. Right. Uh, so now it's finally power to the people. And it's taking that dead capital and making it a viable asset. Perhaps we take 10% and put it in trust for the next generation born over the next 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we take 10% to take it public in major markets so we can raise several billion dollars because they have no money. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is 10% to be distributed to people that uh, whose rice bowls will be broken, <clears throat> people that will make it happen. This is the way it works in these countries. Uh, they're taking all the money now. So you do that, you get rid of all the regulations, uh, get rid of the taxes because it's now a corporation It's going to be paying dividends to people as the country is successful, and uh, you let the market take over. That's it in the briefest
0: nutshell. Is there any case examples towards something like this? Uh,
1: No. Of course, what the ex-Soviet republics, Eastern European republics did was they distributed um, certificates that allowed you to buy shares and so forth. It was very complicated, Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't know what they were getting and they were taken advantage of the average guy got screwed and that's how the oligarchs got their start is buying up these certificates of ownership that were passed out i'm talking about uh, giving the shares in all the government assets directly to the people and lettering them for perhaps uh, uh 20 years so that they can only sell five percent per year until they know what they've got um uh, so it's uh it's it's a it's a much different plan. but no, nobody's done anything like this.
0: I know you thought about this even more profoundly, is like I've seen examples of microstates. I'm sure you've explored the ideas of looking into various different islands and stuff like that. Is it quite difficult to turn, say, for example, a piece of land into a recognized country and therefore being able to implement? All the things that you highlighted I think in other conversations with other people about like the merits of a state which is you know it the value of its um, assets and its potential vote within the United Nations. What would it take to completely incubate something like this as opposed to uh, convincing a lot of guys that feel very comfortable in their current status to um, not wanting to take some kind of the risks that you're indicating to them, or the perceived risk that's you're indicating to them?
1: Well, of course, there is perceived risk, but mainly to the guys running the government, because, yeah. uh, uh, frankly, uh, most people in the governments of these third world countries are there to steal as much as they can, mm-hmm. and they're afraid that something might ha- happen that uh, would break their rice bowls. But... Um, uh, there actually is no risk, and most of the governments in the world today are bankrupt. Uh, they uh, owe much more than they have in the way of assets. So the game is almost coming to to an end. Uh, in the meantime, most of these governments in the world are foolishly printing up trillions of new currency units, trying to keep the ball rolling, which will just result in a currency of zero value, which is even more chaos. So. Um, I treat this as a hobby at the moment. It's uh, an interesting, fun way to um, uh, meet the top people in a country and uh, uh, amuse myself. But I think I can actually get lucky at
0: some point. Hmm. I've done this in a dozen places and had very interesting adventures in the process. Well that sounds very interesting, and just I know that you indicated previously that this is a one-man show for you, so anything that we can do to help you on something like that. I've kind of dabbled with that idea myself in some shape or form, so it'd be great to um, see anything that we can do of assistance, because I do know that many of these countries require so many different things that could add a lot of value to them, and it could be simply, I've spent some time in China as of late, in smaller towns and provinces and cities, And even they need a lot of, say, for example, foreign investment. And they haven't really been opened despite some of the bigger cities in China being completely exposed to multinational entities. So it it does seem like a very interesting hobby. But you're right. One day, you probably could get lucky just by a few circumstances happening in your favor. And then ultimately, everyone benefits from something like that.
1: Well, I tell the guys that run the country, look, I think we can do three things for you. is One, make you legitimately very wealthy, because mm. doing the things that people like uh, Mobutu and Marcos uh, have done in the past no longer works quite as well. Uh, two, will make the people love you, because the people will have an asset uh, for the first time uh, in their lives. And three, put you on the front cover of every publication in the world in a favorable light, instead of being viewed as a... As a, a criminal. So uh, this always gets their attention, but uh, then bureaucracy sets in and so forth. But uh, like I said, it's, uh, at the moment, it's just a hobby, and I'll keep you in mind on that, Peter. Thanks.
0: In terms of many of these countries that you're spending time in, I've heard about how some of these countries by a gentleman named Richard Mayberry, he refers to them as like the areas in the world called Kheostan, And his idea is that these countries have not been exposed to effectively natural law, and therefore they're kind of structured the way that they are with all of these inefficiencies. I know that in your current book, The Speculator, one of the core foundations, Charles Knight, is related to natural law. Could you maybe to this audience, this international audience that might be new to this idea, why would you have your protagonists with these deeply rooted beliefs and, and approach to to life throughout um, at least your first book? And I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a recurring theme for the, the whole series as well.
1: Well, it is. Uh, Charles, uh, we find Charles at age 23. So... The moral code that Charles Knight follows is that there are really only two great laws. One, do all that you say you're going to do, and two, don't aggress against other people or their property. Uh, Anybody can remember those laws, they're commonsensical. Um, So that is what he operates on. Later tries to even simplify those two moral laws uh, and make it the whole of the law shall be do as thou wilt, but be prepared to accept the consequences. And in point of fact, most people actually do do exactly what they feel like, uh, but they don't think about the consequences of what they do. And the point we're trying to make here is that Uh, the more people take personal responsibility for what they do and learn to accept the consequences of their actions, uh, the more rational and the more moral society is, instead of robotically just following usually ridiculous laws handed down by corrupt parliaments and congresses.
0: In regards to natural law and that whole statement about do not encroach in other people's property, I thought about this a little profoundly, like, was someone's original property? Let's take North America, for example, right? You have a situation in which you had natives that were there much sooner than, um, for example, the early foreign settlers, either the Vikings or the other Europeans that came in, which eventually ended up uh, colonizing and turning this into the foundations of the United States. Whose property is it? Because natives will claim that that was their property, and then you'll have the pre-existing dominant society saying that that is our property and we're going to segregate you to this area.
1: That's an excellent point, Peter, and you're actually quite correct. Uh, There are a few instances um, of the uh, European settlers' actually agreeing with the uh, locals and buying property from them. I mean, most famously, uh, Peter Minuet, when he purchased the island of Manhattan from the Indians, and um, in uh, Rhode Island, uh, the state of Rhode Island, the um, uh, settler, I think it was Roger Williams, um, uh, actually made a purchase agreement with the locals, but most of North America was taken by force. That's Mm -hmm. quite correct. And of course, all of South America was uh, no question about that. When the Spaniards conquered the Incas and the Aztecs and so forth, it was all basically stolen land. But um, this is a um, this is a real problem when uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's been a problem since day one. Right. Uh, with with human beings. Uh, you know, I mean, who was it? it was it was uh, Proudhon that said property is theft? Right. And of course, that's what he was referring to—that uh, uh, throughout history, I mean, people have always stolen property from other people. Um, I don't know how we solve that problem. It's a problem with human nature, but we can do the best we can to right. move away from theft.
0: Because if you think about many of the major issues around the world, it's about various different nations saying that that was our property. And therefore, that's why they have all these wars and claims to the land. And I try to take these philosophies into account about natural law. But then when you try to think about the origins, where did the property come from and who owns the property? I guess if you honor the current pre-existing infrastructure and then you conduct yourself... In that manner, then perhaps it makes a lot of sense. I I just don't know how you you get around the actual who lays claim to that as of now. So that's well,
1: <laughs> this is certainly been a bitter problem between the uh, Jews and the Palestinians. Yes, yes, yes. Israel. Uh, and incidentally, I mean the a uh, hundred and. 25 years ago, there were only about 25,000 Jews in uh, the area now known as Israel, mm. and they all owned their property legitimately for many, many years. There were no disputes about this type of thing, and when the Aliyahs uh, started, um, uh, the Jews that emigrated to Israel from uh, from Europe uh, purchased their property. It was only when the state of Israel was formed and property was confiscated wholesale from the remaining uh, Arabs, the Palestinians that were there, that the problem really came up. But previously, you know, they'd bought the property, uh, you know, 40 acres at a time right. from them. So, I mean, it's, it's a problem. I agree with you. But what I'm trying to do <clears throat> with, uh, with my venture in these mm-hmm. third world countries is to take all of the government's property mm-hmm. uh, well, government doesn't really own the property. That's all stolen property. And uh, give good title to individuals and see if we can play the cards from there.
0: So in the case of uh, Charles Knight for your book, The Speculator, what time period is is he um, living this, this um, life in? And is this during the same time period in which we're entering a potential greater depression? And what is the greater depression, by the way? And uh, yeah, what time period is Charles Knight in?
1: Uh, Charles is, uh, this takes place in the uh, in the um, mythical country of Gondwana, okay. which is in West, West Africa, yep. and uh, probably about 10 or 15 years before the present, uh, whatever exact about the time. Right. Um, and the next novel, Drug Lord, is going to be right now in the present, and the one after that, Assassin, is going to be um the current time um, and then we move into science fiction as we as we go into the other uh things taking things into the future with uh with uh, terrorist and warlord and uh, so forth um let me see though we're, what were we talking about just a moment well, we're talking about the greater
0: it. depression so like I uh, guess Charles will eventually enter that.
1: that well okay so since the novels set somewhat before, yep. uh, 10, 15 years before present, uh, that's not really an issue. Mm-hmm. But the Greater Depression, uh, in my opinion, well, we can look at this a number of different ways. You can say that Western civilization peaked, I would say, just before World War One, mm. And it's been going down ever since then as a civilization, even though technology and science have been... Uh, 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 have been improving at a a, a quantum pace. You could say that uh, the United States peaked as a uh, civilization probably in the mid-1950s when um, uh, the U.S. had all of the world's skyscrapers and 80% of the world's vehicle production and 80% of the world's aircraft production and You know, all the science and technology, everything was done in the U.S. in those days, Uh, it's gone downhill. The the standard of living of the average American has been dropping since the early 70s. Um, So what's this Greater Depression about? I think that the Greater Depression, because, you know, in many ways, things have been going downhill on a long-term basis for some time. The Greater Depression, I think, started in 2007, Mm -hmm. when we entered a a gigantic financial hurricane. And um, we went through the leading edge of that hurricane in 2008 and 2009. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been in the eye of the storm for the last five years, as the governments poured trillions of uh, currency units on the waters, uh, like oil on the waters. Uh, And now we're going into the trailing edge of the hurricane. and. The way i describe it is that from this point forward because these governments have done everything that their conventional theories recommend they've they've with quantitative quantitative easing which is basically money printing Mm -hmm. they've created trillions and trillions of new currency units they reduced interest rates to zero and below zero which i thought was metaphysically impossible so what we're going into now is going to be much worse and much longer lasting and much different from the unpleasantness of 2008 and 2009. And so uh, we're moving into it right now as we speak.
0: And I've heard you indicate previously that perhaps one of the shining lights during this period of time could be through technological innovation and and we've seen that actually in the oil and gas um, industry through technological innovation. You're able to so- solve some serious problems in terms of, um, you know, um, demand for a particular commodity or resource. And perhaps we can do so many other things with technology. What do you say to people that criticize technological innovations or technological thought leaders like Ray Kurzweil as Effectively, globalists, because I know that you do perceive globalists as a potential threat to everything that's happening in the world right now. There are people that actually, I think Alex Jones comes to mind, uh, that criticize you know, technocrats basically as as, um, a threat to all the things that he refers to as a liberty.
1: Well, uh, to start with, uh, we we have to define globalists and Basically, people that want to centralize all the political power in the world
0: Mm -hmm. into
1: just a few large entities. So I'm very Mm anti-globalist from that point of view. However, uh, technology is the friend of the average man. Mm Technology has always liberated the average man. I mean, we can go back to the invention of gunpowder. I mean, gunpowder... Initially, it was controlled by the state, the powers that be, but very quickly, when it got into the hands of the average man, it gave him the, possi- the possibility for the first time of taking out an armored knight uh, with a simple, cheap weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at, the, um, look at the, uh, the book. I mean, there was technology that the powers that be tried to control, Right, but as it spread, it gave the individual guy knowledge. Now the Internet. major step forward technological advance but um, it gives every individual in the world access to all the libraries the world gives them tremendous power so the more technology we have uh, the more freedom uh, devolves to the average guy so I'm very pro technology from a personal
0: freedom point of view right but don't the elite get access to the latest innovations in technology And I know that that time lapse between period, curiosity that the elite have access to technology versus like the everyday common person is actually closing, but there are periods, right? There are certain advantages. For example, if we were to develop technologies that allow humans to live forever, I think the case that people make is that as part of the globalist agenda, elites would be the ultimate benefactors of that uh, first and foremost.
1: No no question. You're absolutely right about that. Uh, And I don't know what we can do uh, about that other than keep resources out of the hands of the state uh, Mm -hmm. so that uh, it's harder for the state to access these things. Uh, And speaking about life extension, um, of course, uh, they're going to have have the firstest and the mostest. But uh, at this point... People are doing biolabs in their garage very much the way Steve Jobs and Bill Gates were doing computer labs in their garages uh, a couple of generations ago. Right. So uh, the same thing is going to happen. I mean, there are inconveniences, but um, I'm optimistic from that point of view. And Ray Kurzweil is absolutely right about uh, his projections of uh, exponential growth in these technologies.
0: Is this a space? I, I know you you focus primarily on like the resource and mining space, but um, through this this um, like your observation of this potential secular trend, is that something interest for you from an investment standpoint?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Because um, uh, first of all, let me say, uh, let me apologize to uh, uh, your listeners who uh, now that they know that I'm involved in resources and mining. Uh, Might think that um, I'm a dinosaur because these are dinosaur industries. They're Mm -hmm. on their way out. Uh, In the future, I mean, mining uh, all the low-hanging or most of the low-hanging fruit in the world has already been picked. Uh, It's harder and harder to find uh, good deposits of uh, metals, and of course, we need metals for civilization. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And there more and more capital intensive to mine. It takes longer and longer from the time you find it to the time you can put it into production because of all kinds of political problems. Horrible business. Uh, But technology, again, is going to solve that problem and put all the current mining companies out of business because uh, we'll be mining metals in the asteroid belt within a generation. Um, Nanotechnology will Uh, totally change uh, the nature of mining. Biotechnology will allow us to economically process seawater for what's in it. There's a lot of things that are happening in mining. Um, But technology is going to change the entire nature of the world unrecognizably. And in particular, it's, well there are so many different threads of technology, but they're all advancing at uh, exponential rates. Yeah and um, you know, this is the amazing thing. Uh, of course, you could say that technology's been advancing kind of at an exponential rate since the discovery of fire or the creation of the wheel, uh, which are you know we about two hundred thousand years apart. And then the next major thing was uh, perhaps the domestication of animals uh, and uh, the creation of cities. And things were moving faster and faster. Until now, uh, breakthroughs are being made almost on a daily basis. And um, I think Kurzweil is right that within 20 years, uh, things will advance not just uh, twice or 10 times, but uh, 100 times where they are right now. It's uh, becoming breathtaking. So I'm, I'm optimistic from that point of view.
0: It'll be interesting to see what happens if we reach that point of um, singularity as well.
1: I think it's going to happen. And um, uh, the important thing from the average person's point of view is to make sure that he stays aware of these things intellectually. uh, So he's not blindsided by these changes. And to um, put yourself in a financial position to take advantage of these advances as early on as possible. Mm. Um, So that's why, uh, even though in the future things are not only be better than we imagine, but probably better than we can imagine, that's why it's important to uh, stay on top of these things now so you can survive long enough to um, capitalize on them.
0: So Doug, you wrote this fascinating piece giving some commentary in regards to some gentleman from the Council of Foreign Relations in regards to internationalists and isolationalists. Perhaps you could give like a synopsis because I was um, reading that today actually and I just thought that that was a extremely insightful and and kind of like um, a very interesting way for you to describe you know what are what the elite are considered, what organizations they 're involved in, you know what 's the significance to them? Many people, as you know they, they aren 't even aware of many of these organizations and kind of like what they 're doing and what they 're thinking about and what they 're discussing so it'd be great if you could share to the audience mm-hmm. that commentary
1: well in the world today uh, i don 't know how many of them there are, but the best known Organizations where the um, where the self-appointed elite uh, gather uh, are things like Bohemian Grove mm. in California and the um, oh goodness is my mind blanking the Council on Foreign Relations yeah. and uh, the Davos um, World Economic Forum uh, meets every winter. Um, these are these are three of them and. Uh, there there are some others that are well known. The Bilderberg Conference is another one. Uh so I went to uh, one uh, that's uh, uh in New York and it was exactly the same people that were there. They had uh they had uh everybody from Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld and Marilyn Halfbright and um uh numerous prime ministers and presidents of countries current and ex, and lots and lots of ngos uh which, which have become a huge force because idiotically rich people tend to leave their money to charities and uh you know like an infestation of cockroaches these these um, socialist leaning people just gravitate towards all this free money which They pay Mm -hmm. themselves fat salaries and um, uh, then get to distribute it to help the little people and so forth. So I went to one of these for two days and listened to them blather at each other. And um, a lot of conspiracy theorists think that these people control the world. And, of course, they do indirectly because these are the richest and most powerful people in the world that are how members of How do they do
0: so indirectly, by the way? Sorry to interject, but I, how do they do it inter- indirectly?
1: Well, it's the same people that are in governments and uh, think tanks and so forth that go to these things. These organizations like Bilderberg and, um, and uh, Council on Foreign Relations and so forth, and this thing I went to, uh, which I don't want to name because I was only invited to it, uh, because a, a business partner of mine in a, in a venture in South America was actually the organizer of this thing, believe it mm-hmm. or not. So that's why he invited me. It's not because I belong there. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- don't, philosophically. I held all the people, other people, for <laughs> their contempt, basically. But um, uh, these organizations don't have any power themselves, but they're important because people that do have power uh, go to them and are invited to them. And when new people appear on the scene, like uh, Zuckerberg or something like this from Facebook, uh, Mm -hmm. or the guys that run Google, they're automatically invited to these things. So that's the nature of them. It's so these guys can sit around and get to know each other and share ideas informally.
0: Mm.
1: So um, I found it was interesting to go to it, but basically a waste of my time because it was mostly people... Uh, at least in the formal sessions just talking about the kind of nonsense that you'd read in the New York Times editorial page
0: right right
1: and and it's just so they it's just so yeah. they can it's just an opportunity for these for the rich and powerful to get to know each other right that's what it is they're informal
0: and and going back to that piece that was written by that gentleman from the Council of Foreign Relations you do have some interesting commentary about his perspectives on internationalists and isolationists. Could you share some of that?
1: Yes. Um, huh. um, it's, it's funny. So much of um, what goes on in the sphere is a war of words. In mm. other words, uh, these people will call somebody that um, believes in non-interventionism minding your own business they'll call him an isolationist Mm. and uh that's picked up by the press uh, and so forth but it's completely incorrect uh a a country that wants to keep its nose out of other people's business and not intervene in other people's wars and so forth uh, isn't an isolationist uh it's as thomas jefferson said uh an intelligent country will be uh, friends to all and trade with all, but uh, won't get involved in treaties and so forth, so they're totally different things. Um, but uh, the people that control the media, uh, and this is absolutely true in the U.S., you can see it in the current uh, election.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: The, they're very anti-free market-oriented, they're very anti-individual, they're very pro-state. It's very much the case here in the United States, and it's really the case everywhere in the world, quite right. frankly.
0: Have, have you been...? It, it,
1: well, but it's very much, Peter. Yeah. Like, it, it's the same class of people. Herman Kahn, uh, who, a very interesting guy, is dead now. Uh, wrote a number of books. Uh, he was kind of the model for Dr. Strangelove in the movie, believe it or not. Oh wow. Uh, he He called them the new class uh, the, the, these people uh, that uh,
0: so so in in terms of I, I know you're following the elections and stuff like that, and you're seeing I guess a lot of these think tanks and a lot of the dialogue is also being projected throughout the media in terms of their ideas and and their thoughts that are being projected in terms of um, the results of um, which party that they favor in particular. What are your thoughts in terms of what you're seeing? Because it clearly seems as if uh, the big media corporations do have some kind of agenda, irrespective of whatever party one favors. But uh, it's quite interesting, and this seems quite unprecedented this time.
1: Well, it, it actually is. And I'm not a conspiracy buff, actually. Right. Uh, I, I find that it's too hard to get three or four friends to agree what restaurant to go to or what movie to see. Mm-hmm. So trying to get a hundred miscreants in a room together and agree on, on right. something important is I, it's, it's very hard. But I'll say this, that all these people, that uh, all, all of academia... Uh, in the universities and the people that run the media and the people that uh, get into governments uh, and NGOs uh, these people all went to the same schools they share the same uh, philosophical outlook Uh, they belong to the same clubs they think the same and um, you know that's how they really wind up controlling the world now here here in the US for this election Uh, It's, um, you know, a a card-carrying member of the deep state, Hillary Clinton, uh, against, it was supposed to be another card-carrying member, uh, the third member of the Bush family. It's almost like the United States has reached the stage where we we can only get to choose between dynasties, like between Mm -hmm. the Stuarts and the Tudors or the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns. Right. It's become so degraded in this country at this point. But... um, Donald Trump uh, came out of nowhere, and I'm sure he'll be co-opted into the deep state after he, and personally, I think Trump is going to win, mm-hmm. um, because the average American is so pissed off at this point at the drop in his standard of living over the last few decades, and I think the average American realizes that these, that the managements of these two parties, the uh, Democrats and the Republican, so they they put up a couple of straw figures and give you a choice which isn't a choice. So I, I actually think that Trump is going to win, because the average American is very unhappy with the way things are right now. It's actually a dangerous situation are in many still ways. Are you taking
0: yeah. wagers on that, by the way? Because I'd love to get into that action, if that's the case. No, <laughs> I, made one,
1: I, made one, I made one wager with Marin Katusa. It yes, was a I know. Oh, okay. Uh, what kind of odds are you going to give me that I'm wrong?
0: <laughs> well, on on that very subject, actually, what I'm going to do is I, I think that um, it sounds like the the gap, according to what we hear publicly in the in terms of the polls, is that the gap is quite wide. So I, I as a Canadian, actually, I, I have no um, horse in this race, but I'm more of an observer and and what I what I try to do because I believe that there is a fantastic event driven. Uh, trade on that subject of speculation that could be made based on this instance. And, and the rationale is simple. It, it goes with the idea that, let's, let's say either individual wins, but let, let's just say Clinton wins in this instance. And let's say that the harsh criticism towards her is she's so entrenched into the deep state, and, and that's terrible, and, and she has uh, many special interests in lobby groups, and she's backed by all the big banks, for example. So hypothetically, if, if one understands that and believes that to be fact and can, and can quantify the, the evidence behind this, then perhaps the thesis is, you know, by some of those companies that have been clearly backing her. Um, because I believe that in potentially even in a greater depression instance, that they would be basically both too big to fail, too corrupt to fail, and would also be receiving an immunity idol uh, to whatever extent possible that the, the current leader could provide. So I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to try to build some positions prior, to, uh, hypothetically, if I believe one individual is going to win. And I believe that potentially even for the next little while post that election, that those companies, which are publicly listed, can be an ultimate benefactor. Because as long as you can mitigate the downside risk, then, you know, you know that there could be, it could, you could call it something like the Clinton put, for example, if, if you want to go with a thesis like that. So I don't know about odds, Doug, but, um, basically that's how I'm going to address what's going to be happening.
1: Well, I think that, um, that approach makes a great deal of sense, Peter. I agree with it. Um, I just really think that, um, that Trump is going to win now. Whether Hillary steals the election from him because
0: these, <laughs> yeah.
1: machines, these voting machines can be can be programmed and right. fixed surreptitiously, so who knows what's going to happen? In an no instance,
0: how- by the way, if Trump does win, then I'd imagine that real estate companies, especially in the Northeast, would be a major benefactor of that. For example,
1: well, I think a sa- yes. I think a safer bet. Is that oil prices will stay low mm. if Trump wins because uh, Trump is all for fracking, right, and so forth, and oil production could um, could continue rising in in the U.S. Whereas if Hillary wins, uh, you know she said that she's going to shut down fracking, uh, and that means oil prices are going to explode upwards. In addition to the fact that if Hillary wins. Uh, she's like plumping for a war against Putin and the Russians. There you go. And uh, she's very aggressive yep. in her foreign policy in the Middle East. And if we have a war in the Middle East... Uh,
0: the military-industrial uh, complex. shut off the
1: streets of Hormuz. I mean, oil could go to several hundred dollars per barrel.
0: Right, right. I think, right.
1: I think the, uh, the oil bet is the most direct bet as to which one wins. Th-
0: that, uh, that oil bet, by the way, Doug, is... It's, it's great. Although the, the reason why I do remember this trade idea a lot is that um, when the Bushes or when Bush had won the first election and the, the whole harsh criticism was their connection to various different oil oligarchs. And that was so obvious. And that was in the news. And at that time, oil was still trading like, you know, relatively low. And if you had held oil during that eight year time period that Bush was in, um, was the president, basically, one would have done extremely well. And I think that's a great testament to them. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend today uh, during my lunchtime, which was um, about a great testament to them overall inefficiencies to markets? Because when people discuss about everything, it sounds like it's obvious, but even capital markets don't reflect that.
1: Well, that is the key to um, intelligent speculation. It's not just mm. to find the um, immediate and direct consequences of actions, but the indirect and delayed ones. Yeah. So um, there are opportunities that are gonna present themselves. and. It's not all going to change the day after the elections. So um, so I'm watching the oil markets for exactly the reasons I just mentioned. Um, mm. Trump, for the same reasons. Trump is going to be very good for the mining business. Right. And um, Hillary is going to be terrible for the mining business. For instance, um, the largest undeveloped gold and copper deposit in the world is the pebble deposit in Alaska that I just visited last month, actually. Mm. And um, it's not going to go anywhere under Hillary. It hasn't gone anywhere for a long time because of environmentalists and government agencies and Greens and all this type of thing. But if Trump is elected, these things are going to fall away. And it's going to go into production like very soon. Right. So I own a lot of the stock. I'm uh, kind of putting my money where the, my mouth is. Mm. So there are things like that. So, well, I hope I'm hope I'm right about Trump, actually, not just because I think I'll, I think it'll be, uh, I, I can make some money on things like that. Right. Uh, Hillary is just going to be a complete disaster for the economy. She's <laughs> going to trench the deep state absolutely everywhere. And it's going to be even harder to get these people rooted out because by the time she's out of office, uh, she'll have appointed several new Supreme or justices mm-hmm. um, you know that's hard to change so uh, she's going to change immigration policies in the US and I'm all for open borders incidentally uh, absolutely open borders as long as all properties pri- uh, privately owned and um, uh, there are no welfare benefits to draw people but that's not the world we live in but if she brings in hundreds of, of millions of uh, of new immigrants from Africa and the Middle East, this is a large enough group with an alien enough culture all of a sudden that it could change the entire nature of the U.S. And certainly their voting patterns are all going to be Democrats for the future, and the Democratic Party is a, a cesspool of socialists, and anti-capitalists, uh, just you know, all kinds of, you know, racists. It's a horrible thing. So. Uh, <laughs> It, this is a, a major, major election in American history that we're
0: looking at. Doug, let's let's end this off by discussing about the Deep State. Like, What is the um, definition of the Deep State, and what are its origins as it pertains to the United States?
1: Well, perhaps we can call the Deep State, which is a term that originated in Turkey in the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire... Uh, perhaps it's exactly we can call it here.'ve we've always we've had it in the United States for for, for a century, on a much smaller level, what's called the establishment. It's um, the people that control the country, directly and indirectly. And who composes the deep state? Well, it's not all the congressmen, but it's the top guys in Congress. It's the, it's the generals, it's the heads of these praetorian agencies, it's the heads of big corporations and so forth. Uh, well, very much the same kind of people that go to these conferences that we were talking about earlier. Right. So uh, it's an informal organization where all these guys with common philosophies and common interests, where one hand washes the other to the detriment of the average person who winds up paying for, for what they want. So um, I'd like to destroy the deep state, but um, they're very entrenched and very powerful.
0: How did America gradually become a deep state? Because I I know based off of um, the Constitution and stuff like that, uh, the the founding fathers didn't have it quite like that. It it took time. And I hear things about the the whole story and evolution of, of central banking, for example, and how it's gradually entrenched itself into the United States as maybe one example of of um, um, a component of the deep state being implemented. Well,
1: well here's the thing. It's that uh, government is a coercive institution and a certain type of person uh, likes coercion as opposed to volunteerism. So people like that gravitate towards government more and more over time and naturally, government becomes more and more uh, powerful because of this gravitation. And I think the government has reached a critical point in the United States now, where even uh, decent people who are just looking for a a job uh, don't want to work for the government because it's just so poisonous. I mean, I think it's really reaching that point. Um, It's like going to work for the mafia. I mean... (laughs) Uh, good people just don't want to consider it. And it's increasing that that way with the um, with the U.S. government. So that's what the deep state is all about. And um, what are we going to do about it? I don't know. Well, the good news is that the U.S. government as an entity is bankrupt. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to play out. That's very dangerous. It's like a giant dinosaur and its death throes. But um, I think it is isn't. its death throes. So... Uh, one, one more reason for optimism. Uh, we're going, we're going through the greater depression, which is not going to be fun. But uh, in the long run, I'm optimistic.
0: We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx dot com.